I wanted us to turn to maybe a chapter he hadn't thought of about an Easter Sunday sermon, but um, Psalm chapter 16, we're going to look at this Psalm of David. If you have a bulletin, there's an outline of the message in there. If you didn't get one, feel free to get up and grab one now. They're at all the exits. And there should be, well, I don't see any printed copies back there, but there should be a few printed copies of the message available as well. And uh, you can grab one of those if you didn't get one. And if you have an electronic device, uh, you can go online and the printed message is there on the church website already and the audio will follow. Psalm 16 is a miktam of David, and if you ask me what in the world is a miktam, I have to say I have no idea, but neither does any other scholar, okay? It's a Hebrew poetic term that we just don't know what that means now. But David is the author, and here is what the Holy Spirit inspired David to write for our good. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. The French philosopher Blaise Pascal argued that all people, without exception, seek happiness. And he said, this is the motive for every action of every person, even, he said, for those who hang themselves. The problem is, People think that sin will bring them happiness. And because sin is deceptive, at first it delivers. It does bring a measure of pleasure. But that quickly fades and turns to corruption. I wonder if I were to ask you, you know, just get out a piece of paper and jot down the first word that pops into your mind when you think of God. Would you write down joy, pleasure? Or would you maybe say, no, no fun. You know, rules. 
The Bible says that God is the source of lasting joy and pleasure. God is. And we should think of it that way. Here's just a few verses. Psalm 34, 8 invites, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Deuteronomy. Now this is, you can't get any more law than Deuteronomy, can you? Deuteronomy, right in the heart of the law, says this, 12, 12, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. And in case you missed it, uh, verse 18 repeats, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all your undertakings. And then Moses is concerned, maybe you missed it, so he repeats it a third time in chapter 27. In verse 7, You shall rejoice before the Lord your God. The New Testament does the same thing with us. The Apostle Paul was in prison, not a pleasant place. There were fellow Christians attacking him. And he wrote to the Philippian church, chapter 3, verse 1, "My Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And he was concerned too that they might miss it. So he repeats it again in chapter 4. In verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And the Bible shows that the Holy Spirit is the source of joy. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit that he produces in those who walk in the Spirit. And Paul says the Christian life isn't a matter of rules about eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Joy comes from God. And these verses, along with our psalm, invite us to find full joy and lasting pleasure in God. That's what Psalm 16 is all about, is the last verse of it, verse 11 shows, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Uh, When I teach from the Old Testament, I often consult this scholarly old German uh, commentator named Franz Delich, and uh, he assumes you know all the ancient Near Eastern languages as well as Greek and Hebrew and Latin and a bunch of other languages I don't know. And, uh, you know, he's not a guy that you would just think of as a staid German scholar who would recognize what he writes here. But here's what he says about Psalm 16. There reigns in the whole psalm a settled calm, an inward joy, and a joyous confidence which is certain that everything that it can desire for the present and for the future, it possesses in its God. And he's right. This psalm is telling us to have full joy and eternal pleasure. Make the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ your supreme treasure. The psalm falls into two sections. In verses 1 through 6, it describes how to make the Lord your supreme treasure. And then verses 7 through 11 describe the results that follow when you do what verses 1 through 6 tell us how to do. Also, though, all commentators agree that verses 8 through 11 applied not only to David, but they also apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
they say that because Peter, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, cited these verses, 8 through 11, and applied them to Jesus. Also, um, the Apostle Paul, when he preached in a city called Pisidian Antioch, in the synagogue there, he uh, cited verse 10 and applied it to Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to add a third point this morning, and that is that all of God's treasures are secured by the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll remember that Jesus in the upper room on the night he was crucified, before he was crucified, said, I'm speaking these things to you so that your joy may be made full. Full joy is the promise Jesus makes to those who put their trust in him. So the first section, verses 1 through 6, and I'm just going to walk you through this psalm verse by verse and show you uh, what it means. It says, make the crucified and risen Lord your supreme treasure. And there are five ways to do that. First of all, in verse 1, make the Lord your refuge and your Savior. He says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. Probably David wrote this psalm when his life was in danger, as it often was. People were gunning for him, out to, out to kill him. So he needed rescue and a refuge. It doesn't say some of his psalms he actually wrote from a cave where he was taking refuge, but he makes it clear even when he took refuge in a cave, he wasn't trusting the cave. He was trusting in the Lord. And the truth is, we all need a place of refuge, a place of protection, both temporally so that our lives will be preserved, but more than that, eternally. I mean, temporally, I hope you've fastened your seatbelt. I hope you uh, have given up smoking and you eat healthy food and exercise and do all the good things to protect your life, but don't trust those things. Fasten your seatbelt, but pray for protection. Eat healthy food, but say, Lord, would you please bless this food so that we might be healthy. And, And take good care of yourself medically. Go to the doctor and all that, but don't trust the doctor. Trust the Lord, who is our healer. So we need the Lord's protection, his preservation. We need him as our refuge in this life. But far more than that, the statistics are pretty impressive. We're all going to die. And when we die, we will stand before the judge of the universe. And how can we avoid condemnation on that day? Many people, most people, think, well, try as hard as you can, be a good person, and it'll go okay on Judgment Day. I was reading a short blurb in the paper today by Oprah Oprah Winfrey, and she believes in some cosmic force and said, I believe that it will be good when I meet him. Lots of luck. Lots of luck. You know, it's the idea your good works will outweigh your bad works and God will brush away the bad works because he's kind of a, you know, forgiving guy and it'll go okay. Let me ask you this. If you had murdered multiple people and went before the judge and you said, judge, you know, I'm a basically good person. I mean, I help out over at the soup kitchen every week 
and, you know, I give money to charity. Uh, so would you please just forgive all these murders? Do you think the judge would do that? Well, I don't think so. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, but I mean, I'm not even close to a murderer. Ah, really? Have you read what Jesus said in Matthew 5? He said, even if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in God's sight. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I would venture to say, not many here could say I've never been angry once in my life. And if you would say that, you got another problem. You're a hypocrite. Because we've all been angry. We've all murdered. He goes on to say, if you've lusted, you've committed adultery. The point Jesus is making is God judges the heart. And in our hearts, all of us are guilty of multiple sins from the time we're toddlers till the time we die. And we all need some means of having those sins forgiven. And God can't just brush them away. Um, God has justice. He is holy. And that sin must be paid for. Now here's the great news that we proclaim not just on Easter, but every Sunday. God offers forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus came as the perfect life to represent us. He died in our place. He's risen from the dead to prove that God accepted his death as payment for our sins if, if we trust in him. And you see, through the death of Jesus, God can be what Paul says in Romans 3, just, the penalty's been paid, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul, later in that same book of Romans, wrote in Romans 10, 13, Therefore, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever's pretty broad, isn't it? That includes every single person here. If you will call on the name of the Lord as your substitute for your sin. Put your trust in him. Paul says you will be saved. You will be delivered. That's what David's talking about here when he says, Lord, preserve me, save me, for I take refuge in you. The second thing, second way to make the Lord your supreme treasure is make him your Lord and your supreme good. That's in verse 2. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good besides you. Now, some scholars translate that last phrase, the New King James Version, for example. My goodness is nothing apart from you, which would mean God doesn't need our good deeds. They can contribute nothing to him. But most scholars understand it the way it's written in the New American Standard Bible. And that is, I have no good besides you. And in that way... It's saying the same thing that Psalm 73 says in verse 28, where, or I mean verse 25, where the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. And then in verse 28, he goes on and says, But, <clears throat> but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. 
I have made the Lord God my refuge. So same idea as verse 1 here. Uh, Sam Storms has a memorable comment. He said, everything without God is pathetically inferior to God without everything. Everything without God, it could be the richest person in the world, is pathetically inferior to the poorest person who has God as his treasure. Can you truly affirm verse 2? Lord, I have no good besides you. The only way you can do that is if you can affirm the first part of verse 2. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Lord. You know, David was a Jew. The Jews were the chosen people of God. So David could have thought, hey, I'm good, man. You know, I'm part of the covenant people of God. Just this morning, I was reading in John 3 in my quiet time, and Jesus has that well-known encounter with Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. I mean, you're talking good. Put him up at the top. He was a good guy. He tithed, he fasted, he kept all the Jewish feasts, he was moral. And Jesus cut to the quick with him and said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. And he caught Nicodemus up short. What are you talking about? But Jesus was making the point there, being a Jew isn't enough. Applying that to today, being an American isn't enough. Narrow it down, being an American churchgoer doesn't cut it. You must be born again. You have to have the new birth. And you have to know Jesus as your Lord. Jesus, you're my Lord. And only when you know Jesus personally as your Lord can you say, you're my only good. You're my treasure. Jesus taught the same thing in a couple of parables in uh, Matthew 13. He said there in verses 44 to 46, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding the one pearl... Of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. And being a Christian means the Spirit of God has opened your eyes to see that Jesus is the supreme treasure. And if you have him, you have it all. And if you don't have him, all your good works count as nothing on Judgment Day. You've got to have Jesus. The Apostle Paul was another Pharisee who was a good guy. I mean, Jew of the Jews, tribe of Benjamin, his pedigree was clean. He, he had it. And even in zeal, he was persecuting the church because he thought that, that Christians were a bunch of heretics. And then on that memorable day on the Damascus Road, he met the risen Christ. And he writes about that exchange that happened in Philippians chapter 3, Verses 7 and 8, he gave up all of his good works to gain Christ. He says it this way, whatever things were gained to me, 
my pedigree, my, my good works, my zeal for God, all those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. There's that phrase, my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as but rubbish, just a pile of trash, so that I may gain Christ. Have you done that? Have you taken all your good works and put them on the trash heap and said, no, they count as nothing. Jesus and his righteousness is my only hope for heaven. That's how you make the Lord your supreme treasure. And as we'll see, that's the path to having him as lasting joy and pleasure. The third thing David says in verse 3 is make the Lord the center of your relationships. As for the saints who are in the earth, they're the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. You see, making the Lord your supreme treasure in verse 2 doesn't mean you go off and join a monastery and take a vow of silence and cut yourself off from human contact, but rather it means you put God at the center of your life. And that includes all your relationships. And so David's point in verse 3 is that his joy in God is enhanced because he's in company with other people whom he calls the saints and majestic ones. The saints are those who are set apart unto God. The majestic ones refers to their character as being upright or excellent. And so David is saying that the path that we walk on is not a solitary path. We do it in company with the saints. And that's kind of what I'm talking about in our series on the church right now. So to make the Lord your supreme treasure, you do that by making him, first of all, your refuge, your savior. In verse 2, you make him your Lord and your supreme good. In verse 3, he's the center of your relationships. And then in verse 4, you make the Lord the exclusive object of your worship. David's thoughts about the saints make him think about the fact that there are some who have turned their back on God. Maybe for a while they professed to be Christian, but uh, now they've turned to the world. And David is saying that uh, they, unfortunately, are uh, not those who have God's joy. He says in verse 4, the sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Now, the word bartered for can also be translated run after, but either way, the idea is they've traded in the living and true God, and they have false gods in his place. They're going after idols, But David says those idols just multiply their sorrows, not their joys. And you know, that's always the case when we pursue the idols of this world. Uh, Idols don't have to be the little statues, although many people around the world literally bow before statues. 
In fact, it's, it's always stunned me that for the 25 years I've lived in Flagstaff, <clears throat> we've had a store, you know, there are a lot of businesses come and go. You can tell, is there a market for this stuff? Because they go out of business. There is a store that is still in business that sells idols downtown. That's all they sell. Spooky to walk by there. All these idols. And they, they make a business doing that. But idols don't have to be those things. Idols can be financial success. You think that's going to, you know, do it for you? Uh, sensual pleasure. That can become a god. Just personal peace. Hey, I don't care about anybody but me. I just want peace. That can become a god. Self is perennially on the throne as a competitor with God. Many, many of these things can become false gods. They, anything in your life that satisfies you where God is set aside, this is now your treasure, that's an idol. And David says it's not going to bring lasting joy and pleasure. And then finally, David says, make the Lord your present and eternal inheritance in verses 5 and 6. The Lord, he says, is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. In the same way, the Apostle Paul in um, uh, the New Testament in Ephesians 1 and in Romans 8 says, In Christ we have an inheritance. Uh, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, he goes on and he says that in the ages to come, God is going to show us the surpassing riches, not just the riches, the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I think what he's saying there is it's going to take all eternity for the Lord to show us how much we have in Christ because those things are infinite. We'll never get to the bottom of them. Now the idea behind David's words here in Psalm 16 verses 5 and 6 is the apportioning of the land to the Jews when they moved into the land of Palestine to uh, the promised land. And God divided the land among the 12 tribes by lot. But there was one tribe that didn't get any land, the tribe of Levi. They were the priestly tribe. And the Lord said this to Aaron in Numbers 18.20. He said, you, and he means you Levites, you priests, shall have no inheritance in, in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. Do you suppose the Levites heard that and went, oh, bummer. You know, I don't get any land. All I get is God. I want the real estate. Well, not if they knew what the treasure is. They didn't say that. And and as David reflects on this, what he's saying is this, having the Lord as my portion and my inheritance is better than the finest piece of real estate in the entire land you could give me. God is better. That's what he's saying. John Calvin makes this comment. He says, For he who has God as his portion 
is destitute of nothing which is requisite to constitute a happy life. Or C.S. Lewis put it this way, he who has God and everything, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. God only is sufficient. And so David's primary joy isn't in God's gifts, it's in God himself. Can you honestly say, I have made the Lord my supreme treasure? You make that choice when you put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. He becomes everything. He becomes your all in all. And, of course, you grow to that appreciation as you walk with him. But when the Spirit of God enables you to do that, what's the result? Well, that's what David goes on and talks about in verses 7 through 11 of our psalm, the second half. He says that when the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ is your supreme treasure, he will satisfy you with full joy and eternal pleasure. And David here lists four blessings that result when you make the Lord your supreme treasure. First, verse 7 When the Lord is your supreme treasure, you enjoy his counsel and instruction. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. Now, if you have a literal translation in the margin, you'll notice that the word mind is literally kidneys. So David is saying, my kidneys instruct me in the night. And if you're of my age, you go, yeah, I understand that verse. My kidneys do instruct me in the night many a time. But no, for the Hebrews, the kidneys were your innermost being, um, your gut, you might say, and uh, your feelings deep down in. And the word night is plural, and so the idea is night after night after night, the Lord instructs me in my heart, in my innermost being. Maybe he's talking about the night watches when his life was literally being threatened by a Saul's army or someone else who's trying to kill him. And David was awake and his thoughts would turn to the Lord. And of course, he had meditated on the word of God and those verses would come to his mind. And so that would instruct him. And the point is this, when you hide God's word in your heart, And maybe you're going through night after night of some trial. We've all had those nights where you wake up and you just can't get back to sleep because your mind is on that trial. The Word of God gives you counsel. The Word of God gives you peace. And that's what the next verse is about, that when the Lord is your supreme treasure then you experience his stability in trials. He says in verse 8, I've set the Lord continually before me. And because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, your responsibility in that verse is to set the Lord continually before you. As a result, you will not be shaken. It's the same thing Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 where he says, You know, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He goes on and says, set your mind. So this is a deliberate choice 
Set your mind on those things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. Uh, So the idea is set your mind on those things of God, on those things above. Set the Lord continually before you. And then when you do that, Isaiah 26.3 explains the result. Isaiah says, the steadfast of mind... There's that term again. Those who have their mind set on the Lord, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. So when the Lord is at your right hand, even though there may be a whole army against you, you know you have his peace because the Lord is the majority if he's on your side. The third result when you put the Lord as your supreme treasure is you experience gladness and joy because you're secure in him. And that's in verse 9. David says, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. That word glory is a word for the soul. And by adding my flesh, David is saying my outward man And my inward man, my total being, is glad and joyful because God has caused me to live securely. And you know, the point for us as believers is this. If you put your trust in Christ, your salvation is secure. Remember those great that great chapter, Romans 8? If you're not familiar with Romans 8, you ought to be there often. But Paul begins that great chapter where there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he he goes on toward the end of the chapter. And if God is for us, who can be against us? You know, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? You know, God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised who's at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And then he ends that chapter on that great crescendo of what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, including death. We have security in Christ. And therefore, we have great joy in his presence. And the Bible says that if God is your treasure, that means you're his treasure, and God never loses his treasure. So we're secure in him. And then finally, the final blessing is in verses 10 and 11, and that is that when the Lord is your supreme treasure, you experience eternal joy and pleasure in God's presence. David says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Now as we'll see in just a moment, those verses ultimately apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. But applied to David, the idea is either the Lord is going to preserve his life from the present danger he's in. Or maybe he will die, but he will not experience eternal destruction. One commentator says, to undergo decay is a metaphor for total isolation and abandonment from God's presence. And so rather than that, by walking in the path of life, David is saying he has hope beyond the grave. Uh, Many times you'll hear critics say, well, the, 
The idea of life after death isn't known in the Old Testament. That's ridiculous. Job, one of the oldest books in the Old Testament, says, even though my flesh is going to die, yet I will see you. Job had hope beyond the grave. David had hope beyond the grave. Remember when he lost his little baby? And he said, he won't come back to me, but I will go to him. And he finds comfort in that. So he's not just saying, I'm going to die like he died. He's saying, I'm going to see him after death in the resurrection. And, you know, all through the Old Testament, there's that hope of life after death. Sure, it comes into sharper focus in the New Testament. But um, anyway, that's the idea here. Now, David's joy, his satisfaction in God here in the end of this psalm, stands in stark contrast to his son Solomon, who inherited the throne. You remember how Solomon sought satisfaction in his work, but he found that empty. You know, a lot of men make that mistake. Oh, I'm going to find satisfaction and joy in my job. Really? It's not going to last. And then Solomon turned to wisdom. Yeah, that'll do it. He ended up saying, no, that's vain. It's like chasing a soap bubble. Just bursts in your hand. So then he built a beautiful palace and had the most fabulous garden on the face of the earth around his palace. And a lot of people think, oh, that bigger home, you know, fabulous landscaping, that'll do it. Solomon said, no, no, no pleasure there. So then he hired a stand-up comic. He tried laughter and he tried wine. He said, no, that didn't make me happy. And then he tried sex. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, incredible You know, he said, no, that didn't cut it. That didn't cut it either. None of that could do it. And he was the most wealthy man on the face of the earth. And he said, no, it's vain. I'm going to die and it's all being left to someone else. Well, he tells about all this in the book of Ecclesiastes. And then finally, at the end of the book, he comes to realize contentment is in God. Bottom line, fear God, keep his commandments. And that's where he found satisfaction. Too bad he didn't think about what his father wrote here. That joy and satisfaction is in the Lord when you make him your supreme treasure. But there's still a question. All right, you're saying, if I make the Lord my supreme treasure, I will have eternal joy But what about right now? You know, I mean, that's pie in the sky when you die talk, but but what about if I have a hard life and maybe get cancer and die as a young person or just a hard life and I die and that's all there is? How do I know that I'll have eternal joy and pleasure at God's right hand? Well, that's the last point I want to make, that God's promises of eternal joy and pleasure are secured by the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. And I say that because, as I mentioned, both Peter in Acts 2 
And Paul in Acts 13 cite this psalm and they apply it to the risen Lord. They say this verse, verse 10, doesn't apply to David. David died. David died. It applies to David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is risen. So after citing verses 8 through 11 in Acts 2, Peter then concludes his sermon this way, Acts 2, 29 to 32. He says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Maybe he gestured down the street. You all know where David's tomb is, right? And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses, all the apostles. And you know, it is amazing that every single one of the apostles, including Paul, were willing to suffer persecution. All of them, except for the apostle John, suffered martyrdom. And John was banished to a pile of rocks out in the Mediterranean for his faith. You know, men don't do that for a myth. You know, if you know it's a nice legend... (laughs) Excuse me, but if you're going to start beating my body and I'm heading for crucifixion, I I think I might decide that that was a nice legend and myth, but I'm not going to tell you it's the truth. But every single one of those men bore witness that Jesus is risen from the dead. And Paul went so far as to say, if that is not true historically, then your faith is worthless You're still in your sins. Go eat, drink, and be merry because you're going to die tomorrow and there's nothing else. But, he said, Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen. And that means that God's promise of eternal joy and pleasure in his presence is secure for those who believe the apostolic witness to the resurrection of Jesus, to his death on behalf of your sins, to his resurrection that shows that God accepts that as adequate payment for our sins. How many of you have seen the current movie, The Case for Christ? A few of you, not enough of you. You need to go see it while it's still at Harkins. It's a true story about Lee Strobel and his conversion. Lee was an atheistic legal affairs crime reporter for the Chicago Tribune back in the 80s. And um, something unexpected happened in his life. His wife, who also had been an atheist, got saved. She came to faith in Jesus. And that totally upset Lee's apple cart. What? Surely she's going to get over this myth, this legend. And he goes to an atheistic friend who who tells him, well, the thing that's going to convince her is the truth. So... Show her what a myth this whole Christian thing is. Well, he's an investigative reporter, so he sets out to prove that the resurrection of Jesus is just a fable, a myth, a legend. Now, in the movie, they only have time for a few investigations that he does, but in his book, 
the case for Christ. There are 13 different interviews that he does with scholars, and he goes to them to try and disprove the resurrection. I think the book, The Case for Easter, might still by Lee Strobel, maybe out on the book table here. But he interviews these 13 scholars, and uncomfortably, one by one, they show Strobel that the resurrection of Jesus is not a myth. It's the truth. And grudgingly, gradually, he comes to believe what the gospel accounts say about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And today, Lee Strobel is a pastor down in Houston. He came to faith in Christ, and he's written several other books, Case for Faith and some others. But he's not the first man that that happened to. Uh, More than a century before Lee Strobel, there was a man named Simon Greenleaf, He lived from 1783 to 1853, and he was a professor of law at the Harvard Law School, and uh, he wrote a three-volume legal masterpiece called A Treatise on the Law of Evidence. It's still regarded as the greatest single authority in the entire literature of legal procedure. In fact, the U.S. judicial system today operates on the rules of evidence established by Simon Greenleaf. Well, while he was teaching at Harvard, Professor Greenleaf, who was an atheist, told his class that the resurrection of Jesus was a legend, and as an atheist, he said, miracles are impossible. Three of Greenleaf's students challenged him and said, apply your rules of evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. Well, he resisted at first, but finally he... uh, took up their challenge, and he attempted to prove that the resurrection of Jesus was false. The more he investigated the record of history, the more stunned he became at the positive evidence supporting the claim that Jesus indeed had risen from the tomb. In fact, he was so persuaded by the evidence that Simon Greenleaf became a committed Christian. Well, what I'm saying is this, God's promise of full joy and eternal pleasure are secured by the fact that Jesus died for your sins, that he was raised bodily from the dead, and of course, that he is coming back again bodily soon. And the apostolic witnesses all affirm that. The burden of proof is on you. Try to disprove it. If you can, but you've got to be a sharper mind than Simon Greenleaf and a sharper mind than Lee Strobel, and there have been others as well. Frank Morrison, I don't have time to tell of him. Uh, He was another lawyer who thought that the resurrection was a myth, and he found out it's true. But all this only applies to you if, if you've counted your good works as rubbish, You've recognized you're a guilty sinner before a holy God. And you've recognized that Jesus is the only substitute for sinners. And you've put your trust in him. That's the only way this applies. And so I advise you this morning, sell all that you have and buy that field with the treasure of Jesus. Get rid of everything you have and get that pearl of great price who is the risen Lord, 
And the promise of the Bible is you'll have full joy and lasting pleasure at the right hand of God. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and uh, maybe you came in as a good person, thinking your goodness would get you into heaven, I hope that the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see that, nope, all the goodness in the world won't atone for your sin. You need a Savior. And that's why God sent Jesus, to be the Savior of only one kind of person, sinners. And right now in your heart, you can simply say, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Lord, I lay aside all my attempts to commend myself to you by my good deeds. And I trust in Jesus and his shed blood alone to be my refuge, my rescue, my deliverance from my sin. Thank you that he died for my sins, that he is raised from the dead. And I put my trust in him right now. Dear Lord, I pray that you would do the miracle of the new birth in hearts this morning. That none hearing my words would go out of here thinking that their good deeds will qualify them for heaven. But that all of us would flee to Christ as our refuge today. Fill us with your joy. Fill us with pleasures forever in the risen Jesus. And we will give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.